The first reading today is taken from Psalm chapter 2. Uh, you can follow along on the screen and also on page 536 of the Blue Church Bibles. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The second reading for today is from Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and can be found on page 1236. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near." Well, thanks, Tom, and good morning again. Uh, like I said, my name is Cam, and it's uh, great to have you all here with us this morning. Can I invite you to keep open uh, Revelation chapter 1? We'll be spending our time together uh, looking at that this morning. And in the leaflet you would have got on the way in, there was a bit of an outline to give you some idea of where we're heading. So uh, if you find that helpful, please keep that open. Um, but what we're doing this morning is starting in our 10-week series looking at the first five chapters of Revelation. Uh, we will pick up, like I said earlier, the, the rest of Revelation at a later date. Um, but as we come to Revelation, I think, um, I reckon Revelation has a pretty unusual place in the lives of Christians. Uh, at one level, it's one of the easiest books in the Bible to find, right? I can always find Revelation or Genesis, no problems. So you would think Revelation should be one of our favourites. Um, but I think there are actually two main reactions to Revelation. Let me explain how the first reaction goes. You sit down, you read Revelation, and you find it pretty confusing, uh, perhaps a bit concerning, but definitely confusing. And you're thinking, like, what am I reading? There are beasts with horns coming out of the earth. There are dragons fighting with angels. There are people who are washing their white clothes in blood to make them clean. It's all very strange. And then you come across things like 144,000 people. There's a beast with the number 666. There's the Battle of Armageddon. There are things that kind of feel like they should be significant. Like you've seen movies with things like Armageddon and there's beasts and 666. You've spoken to Jehovah's Witnesses. So you feel like uh, some of this stuff should be significant. But you don't really know why. In fact, the whole thing kind of just feels confusing, strange, weird. And so the first reaction that I think Christians often have to Revelation is, well, it's just kind of easier to avoid it. Maybe we'll read the good bits, like right at the end, the bits about you know, new, new heavens, new earth, that's good. The seven letters to the seven churches, that's kind of straightforward. 
But otherwise, we mostly avoid Revelation and perhaps we'll ask that no one will ever want us to preach on it. Sometimes I think what makes us really want to avoid Revelation, though, is meeting the people who have the opposite reaction. Uh, Maybe you've seen these people on YouTube, maybe you know some of them. Uh, Because I think the second reaction that people often have with Revelation is to become absolutely obsessed with every little detail. They become obsessed and then with great confidence they'll explain to you, even if you didn't ask them to, they'll explain to you why the number 666 is all about the internet or credit cards or whatever. Or they'll tell you with great confidence that the Antichrist is definitely Hitler or it's definitely Donald Trump or my favourite, it's definitely Oprah Winfrey. Now it's not just that uh, this confidence, it's not just confidence they have, it's, it's an obsession It's an obsession, and it can be pretty off-putting, I think, for the rest of us. Uh, By the way, um, for our Revelation series, we're we're relying pretty heavily on the work of EV Church from New South Wales, a a great church. Uh, And I found a sermon by their senior pastor uh, quite helpful for today, so some of his uh, thoughts are in my sermon this morning. Um, But Andrew Hurd, their senior pastor, used a great phrase uh, about Revelation. He says that Revelation has been the happy hunting ground of every heresy. And we've seen this, actually, throughout history, countless times, cults, uh, weird sects, have uh, based some really wacky and sometimes dangerous ideas around Revelation. And so, if you're thinking of starting a cult, here's a tip for you, start with Revelation as a bit of a shortcut. Um, Now, perhaps you don't really identify uh, with these two main ways of uh, reacting to Revelation, that's uh, that's a good thing, I've probably been a bit bit unkind in some of my generalities, Uh, but generally speaking... I think it's fair to say Christians read Revelation with a fair amount of caution. And so as we start our series in Revelation, it seems that the first thing we need to sort out is, well, if it seems so weird and unusual, can we be confident as we read Revelation? Can we be confident that we won't end up in weird and strange and unhelpful places? Uh, Let me be the first to say that, um, absolutely, Revelation has a lot in it that appears to be very unusual to us as modern readers. Uh, But I think the place we have to start with Revelation is the claim that Revelation makes about itself, right at the beginning. Uh, So if you have open there, chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 1, what we see is that this is the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him. What that means, of course, is that Revelation is God's word. Now, uh, we talk about the Bible being God's Word a lot, so that sounds like a pretty obvious thing for me to say, is it's God's Word, and yet, I think sometimes we do need to say the obvious things. Revelation is God's Word. Here in verse 1, God the Father, who is the source of all truth in the universe, He reveals truth through His Son, Jesus, uh, which is the case in all Scripture. Through His Son, by His Spirit, God reveals truth. Uh, We saw some of that in the kids' talk this morning. And so we should treat Revelation like we do the rest of the Bible, with great care, but also read it with great confidence. We should read Revelation with confidence because God is ultimately the author. And God is an excellent communicator. In fact, God is the best communicator. I think that needs to be our starting point as we come to Revelation. What that means is that the words we read in Revelation are not too weird. Because God himself stands behind those words and he wants us to be able to understand them. 
But alongside knowing that God is the author and that he communicates well, alongside that, we also need to realise that uh, in the first place, Revelation is not written to us. Revelation is for us, but it's not written to us. I'll just have a quick look in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1. John, the author, this is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' mates. Uh, John is instructed to send what he writes to some churches in what we would now say is Turkey. And so, Revelation is written to people in a particular time, with a particular culture, a particular place. And because God is the author, we can have great confidence that they could understand Revelation as they read it. They would have not been confused in the same ways that we are often confused. See, God, because he is a good communicator, he uses language, he uses concepts and symbols in a way that these people could have understood far more clearly than we can. So what will help us a huge amount as we work our way through Revelation is uh, knowing that the first readers could understand this. The symbols and images that we see in Revelation, they would have made sense to them. At least far more sense than they often do to us. And so what's going to help us is to try and read Revelation as much as we can through their eyes. And to help us do that, uh, what we're going to do this morning is uh, a fair bit of legwork uh, to try and get our heads around what the book of Revelation is and, of course, what it's not. And so, to start off, the word we use, Revelation, is actually just the Greek word apocalypse. Apocalypse. Now, um, we use that word quite differently these days. Uh, For instance, I'm a big fan of uh, movies that describe themselves as post-apocalyptic, you know, the kind of movies where civilization's broken down, zombies ruling or whatever, like the world in chaos, uh, I kind of like those movies. Um, But the word apocalyptic there is describing an end of of the world for humans. Um, That's not really what the word means. It just means revelation. Revelation. Apocalyptic is revelation. God is revealing something true to us, something that we cannot otherwise see for ourselves. But um, the word apocalypse actually does something else as well. Uh, What it does is it highlights that the book of Revelation uh, is a particular style, a particular genre. Uh, Now, Tim Patrick will be unpacking this a bit more for us at our training day, but let me explain kind of what I mean by genre and why that matters. Uh, Once upon a time, if you wanted some entertainment, you'd, you'd put your get your horse ready and you'd ride it off to what um, something archaeologists have only just rediscovered actually, a place called Blockbuster, I think I'm saying that right. Um, some of you may remember these places, parents you might need to explain this to your children a bit later. Um, what you'd do is you'd go to Blockbuster and you'd wander around for hours uh, looking for the right movie to choose and, um, but the way to find the right movie is you, you work out what genre you want to see. So you look for the signs and you you know what to expect if you pick the genre. So if you see a sign saying comedy, you kind of expect that you'll probably cringe more than you'll laugh. Uh, If you see the sign action-adventure, you know cars will blow up, but the plot will be terrible. If you see romantic comedy, you know you should just avoid it like the plague. Um, It's the same kind of idea when you come to read a book like Revelation. It's a particular style, a particular genre. And so as you read it, you expect certain things to be in it. In fact, by the time John uh, first wrote Revelation, apocalyptic books had been around for ages. It was a pretty popular, pretty common thing uh, to go to the local newsagent or Dimmicks and just pick up the new apocalyptic book that was coming out. Uh, In fact, uh, chunks of the Old Testament, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, are written in this same apocalyptic style. It was quite uh, commonly used. 
Uh, outside of the Bible, there are dozens of books uh, that are written in this same style. And what you expect um, is, in this work that's very popular, people knew how it works. Uh, they knew it's not like reading a newspaper. As they picked up the apocalyptic books, uh, they knew it's not necessarily about the end of the world. Like it, it might be about that, but um, the focus is on the hidden supernatural world becoming visible to someone. This hidden supernatural world becomes visible when they write down what they see. But as they write down what they see, they use very symbolic uh, and, uh, yeah, kind of strange language to explain the strange things they've seen. But what apocalyptic books are really all about is explaining how the supernatural world would have an impact on the real world, or the world we live in, both in the present and in the future. So, to pick up a book uh, back then, and the first word you see is the apocalypse, which is what we see at the start of Revelation, what you expect is you'll meet angels, and they'll take someone to see supernatural things, and then they'll describe those things in very symbolic ways, about how the supernatural world will influence the world that we live in. That's how it works. Uh, And what this means is that uh, there are common and well-known symbols that are used in apocalyptic literature. And you really need to have some idea of what they are. Um, It's not some sort of secret code. Uh, It's just like there are things in uh, apocalyptic books that everyone would have just understood, uh, symbols people just understand. Um, It's kind of like um, how today, for us, um, we understand political cartoons you don't have to have someone explain them to you, right? So, uh, for instance, if there's a cartoon about, you know, it's got Russia in it and there's a, an animal depicting Russia, what's the animal? A bear. You see a bear, you know it's Russia. You don't need someone to explain, this bear is Russia. Like, you just know. If you see a bald eagle, you know it's the US. Um, there's a symbol that points us to something real. Uh, and we get it. We don't need someone to explain it to us. Now, one of the main ways this works in Revelation is with numbers. Uh, Numbers are used a lot in apocalyptic literature, and uh, the most common number in Revelation is the number seven. Um, What we're supposed to see as we read the number seven is actually it's it's representing wholeness or completeness. Uh, See, God completed the world in seven days, and so the number seven has always had this idea of wholeness or completeness attached to it. So to kind of give you an idea of how this works, um, see how in verse 4, John writes this revelation to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, that's uh, the Roman province of Asia. It's not sort of China, Japan. This is what we'd call Turkey, okay? Um, What we need to know is that there were far more than seven churches in the province of Asia, okay? But he's writing to the seven churches. You know, hang on, there are more than seven. What's going on? Oh, yeah, it's apocalyptic. The number seven says that this represents all churches, the wholeness, the complete church. It's seven letters to seven real churches, and yet those seven churches somehow represent all churches. All churches through time, through space, including us. And so as we go through Revelation, we need to pay attention to, the, to what we see the symbols pointing us to, especially in the way those symbols were understood back in the first century by those who read apocalyptic works. We're not free to kind of just make up whatever, you know, things we think the symbols might mean. Um, That's not how it works. See, that's the apocalyptic style. Uh, Revelation, though, is not just apocalyptic. It's a mixed genre, actually. Um, Notice how John, in verse 3, he describes that he's writing prophecy. He's writing prophecy. So, Revelation is apocalyptic and prophetic, 
kind of like, you know, romantic comedy, but, you know, far, far better. A mixed genre. So what is prophecy? What is that? Uh, I think the best way probably to understand what uh, prophecy is, is to read a lot of it. Um, so to go back and read through the Old Testament time and time again, try and work out what are the prophets doing? What are they saying? Um, that'll kind of help us a lot as we read Revelation anyway, because John, as he writes, he uses all sorts of imagery from the Old Testament prophets. Uh, he alludes to lots of things that, if you understand the Old Testament, will help us understand Revelation. Uh, but also, if we read the prophets a lot, what we do is we avoid coming to wrong conclusions about prophecy. See, prophecy is not the same as predicting the future. Prophets are not fortune tellers. What a prophet does is he calls for the audience to listen to the words of God, to remember the promises that God has made and his warnings, and then to respond to God's word. Because a prophet understands that God's promises are sure and certain, and so are his warnings. And so if a prophet says to you, repent or be destroyed, he's not actually predicting the future at that point. He's just sure that God will do what he says he will. Now, the the real key, though, to understanding all of prophecy is to realize that all of God's promises, all his warnings, all his promises, are ultimately met in Jesus. That's the story of Scripture. Jesus fulfills prophecy. Prophecy is all about Jesus. Uh, In fact, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, please flick over to uh, Revelation 19. We'll look very, very quickly. Revelation 19, verse 10. 19, verse 10. Actually, it's the end of verse 10 in chapter 19. Uh, here we see the way that the Holy Spirit is at work at prophecy, and, and again, hear what prophecy is. Revelation 19.10 is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. What that means is, if you're looking for a church where the Spirit is at work, if you're looking for a church where there is prophecy happening, well, look for a church where Jesus is being testified to. That's what prophecy is. And in fact, that's exactly what John does all through Revelation. John is a witness to how amazing Jesus is, and he'll tell us in powerful and uh, in many uh, spectacular ways just how glorious and wonderful Jesus is. Okay, so prophecy is not the same as predicting the future, but, but prophecy does deal with the future. That's especially the case here in Revelation, um, and it's because God is in control of everything. God is in control, so he can reveal the future to John. In fact, as we saw in chapter 1, back in the first few verses there, God can reveal what must soon take place. And so, Revelation gives us a picture of the future. We know what to expect, and so we know how to live. So as we look at Revelation together, we're going to see our future. That's pretty cool. Okay, what we have then is Revelation, apocalyptic and prophetic. Uh, There's also a third genre. I'll touch on this much more briefly. Um, In chapter 1, back in verse 4, we see Revelation is also a letter. Okay, It's a letter written to real people in real places. Uh, I think what will help us really understand Revelation well is understanding the situation the people are in who first read this letter. Um, It seems that uh, John, the apostle, wrote Revelation in about... Uh, 90 AD or thereabouts, Uh, and it's clear from Revelation and from what we know of history as well that this was not a great time to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Um, John himself is writing from a tiny rock in the middle of the ocean. He's in exile because he is a Christian leader. 
And as he writes in Revelation, we see that there are people he knows who have been killed because they were followers of Jesus. For the Romans, uh, you see, they were running the world at the time, at least they they thought they did. Um, For them, there are plenty of gods, okay? And when you think about it, if there are lots of gods, uh, what you really should be doing is try and keep them all happy, right? You don't want any angry gods, that'll that'll mess mess up your life. You want all the gods to be happy, that's your insurance policy. And what you really don't want, if you're a good Roman citizen, is for your neighbours next door to be refusing to keep some of the gods happy and only worshipping one god. That's a bad thing. The rest of the gods will be angry, won't they? That'll be bad for my crops, for my village. Neighbours like that sound dangerous. Now, to make it worse for Christians, actually, the emperor at the time was Domitian, and uh, he was demanding people worship him. Uh, In fact, in Ephesus, one of the cities that John writes to, there was a temple built to the emperor, so you could go and worship the emperor. He was wanting to be called Lord and God. Now, think about this. What happens if you're a Christian who only worships Jesus as Lord and God? What happens when you refuse to worship the emperor, the guy who commands the armies, and let's not forget has a massive ego problem? This is not good. So John, as he writes in exile, he knows that things are going to keep getting worse, actually. This is only just starting. The time is near. I suspect John probably could have told you that without a revelation from God. He had enough sense to know that the Christians were on a crash course with Rome. As it turns out, scores of Christians did die at the hands of the Roman state because they knew only Jesus is Lord. And so John writes revelation to Christians who are facing intense persecution that's about to get worse. On top of that, uh, the churches are all, well, not all of them, the churches generally are infected by heretics, false teachers. They're leading people astray from the truth, leading people to destruction. And I think that brings us to why Revelation is so crucial for us today. In verse 1, in verse 1, we're told why God gave us this book. It's so that his servants know what must soon take place. Uh, For John's first readers, what would soon take place was worse persecution. Uh, And absolutely, for the next few generations of Christians, that was the case. But this book is given so that God's people don't give up, so that we don't give in. Instead, what Revelation does is shows us that there is a battle raging on. It's a supernatural battle, a conflict behind the scenes of history. That's part of what John sees. See, for the Christians in the Roman Empire, they couldn't see that. They couldn't see that. What they could see was the Roman executioner bearing down on them. But what John sees is that behind all the events of history, behind the Roman Empire even, sits an almighty or powerful God. So what Revelation does is it gives us God's perspective. It helps us see how God sees things happening in the world. When God's people are killed, God's not surprised. When God's enemies seem to be winning, God's not worried. Because when the curtains of heaven are opened in Revelation, we see that God is in absolute and complete control. And we actually, in our, in our first reading today from Psalm 2, we, we saw this idea already, actually. Psalm 2 captures some of the great themes of Revelation. In Psalm 2, the powers and kingdoms of the earth are plotting and they're conspiring against God and His Son, Jesus. And we see God on His throne, just, He just laughs at them. He scoffs. 
and then he conquers them completely. Revelation shows us exactly the same thing, but in much more detail. God, Father, Son, and Spirit sits on the throne, and the nations, the powers of evil that rage against him, they don't concern God. They don't worry his heavenly armies. Now, the reason for this is that God has already won. He's already won the battle. I mean, sure, the battle's going on. Like Satan, the great serpent, he's trying to do as much damage in the time he has left. But God is the winner. He's won the battle against evil. He is winning the battle against evil. And he will win that battle completely. That's a picture Revelation gives us. God has won in the past, he's winning now, and he will win totally in the future. So in spite of how bad things may seem for God's people, no matter how much we see evil seeming to win, Jesus has already won the victory. And he did that on the cross. See, the main thing John wants us to know about what he sees in the throne room of heaven, the main thing John wants us to see is how amazing Jesus is and how complete his victory on the cross was. John's testimony about Jesus is that his death and resurrection is the center point for God's plans for history. It's massive. On the cross, Satan was defeated. On the cross, evil was defeated. Sin was dealt with once and for all, which means that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can gather around the throne and worship the one person in the universe who deserves worship. Jesus' victory on the cross is the major theme throughout Revelation. And what John sees is how that victory on the cross plays out in day-to-day life, in history. Because history must unfold according to God's plans. Now what this all means, what this means is that until that final day, until that final day when evil is put away with for good, until then, God's people must persevere. We must persevere. Notice that in verse 1 we saw that what is revealed is what must soon take place. And then in verse 3, kind of ominously, we're told, the time is near. Now, that was very true for the, peop- for the people who first read this letter from John. The time is near. Uh, but it has been true, actually, for every generation of God's people since. The time is near for us, the same as it was then. And the reason for that is that Jesus' mission to the cross It signaled the beginning of the end. We live in the last days. We're actually living in a time where Jesus rules completely, and yet those who follow him, we still live in a battle zone. We can't see Satan and his forces. Uh, We might be able to see those who are opposing God and doing Satan's work, and it does often look like they are winning. I suspect we'd actually see this much more clearly if we lived in different parts of the world, perhaps North Korea, if we were Christians there, or in northern Nigeria. We live in a battle zone. And the call that Revelation makes is to keep trusting that Jesus has already won. To keep fighting, to persevere and overcome. And that's why Revelation matters. That's why it matters for each of us. See, the time is near. History won't keep marching on as it has been. In fact, uh, the time is, if you think about it, the time is far nearer for us than it was 2,000 years ago. We don't know how near. But the day is coming when our Lord Jesus will come to judge the world. 
And what's at stake for each of us is heaven and hell. Revelation matters. Because Revelation will ask us not to you know, fix ourselves up and be really good so that when Jesus judges, where it will be okay. No, no. John tells us Jesus has already saved his disciples. He's won on the cross. His judgment isn't about how good we are or how bad we are. His judgment is about whose side of the battle we're on. The good news is he's already won the battle. And so, will we trust his victory? Or will we be led astray by those who oppose him? Of course, for us, the battle looks very different to what it did in the Roman Empire. Uh, I would hope that in our lifetime, we won't have executioners taking us away for our trust in Jesus. It might be possible, but unlikely, I think. Yet, we are in a battle. Now, I think the tactics the enemy uses are very different. The tactics are different, but it's the same battle. That is, we're not going to have someone with a sword coming for us. What we have instead is... Uh, People telling us every day, in very subtle ways, don't worry about Jesus. Just come and enjoy all the good things that Rome has to offer. Live rich and full lives in Babylon. Don't worry about Jesus. He's not coming back anytime soon. See, I think the real danger we face here in Australia is actually of being convinced that we should chase our own dreams. Go and be an individual. Free to make our own choices. Enjoy the world. Enjoy life. And relax. Relax. Revelation, though, helps us look at the world from God's perspective. And now is not the time to relax. Sure, we should be confident in Christ's victory and we should rest in Christ, but don't relax in our trust in Jesus. We're in a battle. And unless we see that we are in a battle, as God reveals it, and unless we live in light of that, then we're in big trouble. I think it's right for us to all uh, regularly reflect on the trajectory we're on spiritually, like the, the direction we're heading. Like, where are we headed? Are we growing in our love and concern for things of God's kingdom? Or are we pretty relaxed about those things? You know, happy enough to go to church, I'm glad Jesus saved me, but yeah, life's pretty good. How does that trajectory finish? Where does that lead us? How will that help us persevere in the battle? if we're relaxed. Well, here's, I think, the great encouragement for us today. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it. Now, this isn't something superstitious, like, you know, Tom is actually blessed because he read it aloud for us this morning. Um, It's just that, like all of God's words, it's good for us to hear, to read God's word, and to live them out. Because God's Word helps us see reality and then we're able to align our lives with that reality, that heavenly perspective. And if we do that, if our lives are aligned with the reality that Jesus is on the throne, reigning victorious, well, it's then that we're blessed. It's then that we are victorious with Him. Now, I think um, one, of, one very simple way this might look for us uh, is simply to plan to be at church every Sunday. Of course, things will come up, um, sickness, babies, holidays are good, all that stuff. And of course, we never should come thinking that we're earning points with God or anyone else. But if we are in a battle and the enemy's tactic is to make us think that we're not in a battle, well, won't we get distracted by the good things of the world very easily? 
And if that's the case, and the time is near, don't relax. We're in great danger, I think, if we're not allowing ourselves to be blessed by hearing the words of God regularly, hearing them together, actually, as His people, serving and caring for one another, helping each other work out how to align our lives with the reality that Jesus reigns, that He's one. See, we're in this battle together. We need each other, actually. We need each other to persevere. The reason is that Christians are not individuals. It's not like we're just a lump of individuals this morning. When we put our trust in Jesus, we actually give up our independence. Jesus is the boss, not me. And I imagine if you're here sort of checking out Jesus and wondering what life with him is like, that's a, I'm sure it sounds very daunting. It's quite a sort of a high bar, right? But let me say, I think that that is the most freeing decision you can make, to make Jesus the boss. It's freeing because he is a far better boss than we are. In fact, when we accept that Jesus is the boss, Jesus gives us each other. He gives us each other to share God's word with, to share life with, and to help each other see that God's view of reality really matters. And together, we can overcome. Together, we can share Christ's victory. That's what we look forward to, to doing that together. So don't relax. Um, When I finished high school, uh, I moved to Adelaide from the country. And I was going to a good church, uh, Trinity City. I just finished high school and there's lots of young adults there around. Uh, But I think for the first year or so, um, I kind of just went when it suited me or when I felt like it. Um, I was enjoying the complete freedom of being an independent adult in a big city. It's great. Um, now, I was a uni student, and to be fair, I wasn't exactly strapped for time. There's a lot of free time as a uni student, as you know. Um, so, I've probably been there most weeks, not like many other better things came up, but sometimes I wouldn't go because I just didn't feel like it, to be honest. I couldn't be bothered. One of the best things I think that's happened to me in, in hindsight uh, was when a Christian friend... Uh, told me that by not going, I was letting him down and that I was being immature. Now, they weren't his exact words. He was far blunter than that, would you believe? Um, But his message was very clear and he was right. And he was right because he understood something that I didn't. Now is not the time to relax. Instead, now is the time to keep going to God's word to keep having our, shape, our lives shaped by God's right view of reality. And since then, I've got to say, I've been blessed. I've been blessed greatly by trying to get to church every week unless something out of the ordinary happens. Of course, um, it's a bit different for me today. If I hadn't rocked up this morning, it'd be very noticeable. There'd be sort of an awkward pause for 20, 25 minutes. But nevertheless, I've been greatly blessed by hearing God's word week in, week out, sharing life with brothers and sisters week in, week out, doing battle, because the time is near. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed all that we need to know, so that we might persevere to that last day. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our Saviour, and thank you that you have won the battle, and that we can have great confidence. Please help us to see this world as you see it, Help us to long for your kingdom to come, for your will to be done. Help us stand against evil. And please bless us greatly as together we keep meeting around your word, encouraging one another, looking forward to the day when we see you. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.